0: All right, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time tonight. We're thankful for the Word. We're thankful for um, Leviticus, oddly enough. Um, I have really enjoyed the time I've gotten to spend uh, in Leviticus and pray that it would be edifying tonight um, as we um, discuss and consider the text. Uh, Lord, we want to continue to pray uh, for healing in the body. There's just been so much sickness, and so we continue to pray for that. Also, just in light of um, the call to be holy um, that we're engaging in Leviticus, I pray for um, a few upcoming things, the Women's Retreat. Um, I pray that you would be preparing those now who will be teaching and that what they teach lends itself to holiness in the lives of others. I pray that there would be true encouragement as women gather together to look at what it means and to actually walk in, in the light. Um, Lord, I pray that um, you'd work out those details in a manner that's conducive for um, clarity and, uh, and encouragement in the text. Lord, we, uh, I pray for this Sunday's sermon as we're looking at um, the prayers of, of, of a king and, and uh, the dedication of a temple and how that affects us as those who are, are your dwelling place. Um, I pray that Ben would have good time in the Word, uh, uninterrupted. Um, Lord, we pray uh, for our time tonight, again, that it would just be um, edifying, um, encouraging, and uh, glorifying to you. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week's focus. Um, well, first, just a brief reminder of kind of the way we're going through the text um, now on Wednesdays. Um, a number of people were gone last Wednesday, mainly because of sickness and craziness and weather. And so um, Wednesdays, we're taking a new approach. We finished Exodus last semester. I know we're grown-ups, but we still speak in terms of semesters, even though a lot of us, most of us probably aren't in school anymore. But last semester, we finished Exodus. So we spent however many years in Genesis, and then four or five years in Exodus, and we, we took a lot of time on these books. And now, what we're doing, what we, what our approach we've decided to sort of change on Wednesday nights is we're gonna um, do more of survey overview studies of each book of the Bible at a much faster rate. Last week we started Leviticus, tonight we finished Leviticus. Next week we start Numbers. It's crazy. But what we're doing is trying to sort of zoom out a little bit. And, you know, you got the whole can't see the forest for the trees thing. We may not get to the specific detail of the trees as we do in usual expository preaching, but there's a beauty in the forest you kind of zoom out and look at these uh, overviews and, and it'll lend itself to a more comprehensive understanding of the scriptures and a, I think a more solid foundation and hopefully more conversation in homes because this is the first time on Wednesdays where we have the adults and the youth and the children all studying the same things. So know that when you go pick your kids up, they studied what you studied and foster conversation, ask them questions about holiness and what did God mean here and what did he, what did he communicate here. So uh, that's our approach on Wednesday nights now, and we're moving at a faster uh, pace. So, and the big picture is that ideally, if you're a member of this body, you join this body, you're here, one of the things we're hoping for is that every four years you are being taught and walking through with others the entire canon of scripture, every four years. So four years from last week, we'll finish Revelation. That's the plan. If, if, not, if there's no hiccups along the way, that's exactly what we'll do. It's on paper, it's in a document. Um, so, um, welcome youth, welcome, we welcome you, welcome. Y'all welcome the youth. Welcome youth, welcome the youth, yeah. Come on, come on. Y'all just make sure you sit far away from any adults make sure I don't want to catch what they have. <laughs> <laughs> the, the old deceased. <laughs> nice. So, that said, last week, our focus in Leviticus was that um, God's people are distinct, so they should lead holy lives. That was our focus last week. The big thing we took from the study, God's people are distinct, so they should lead holy lives. Real quick, just sort of a uh, icebreaker, why are God's people distinct? Because they're his people, and how did they get that way? Because he saved them, yes, yes, how did he save them? They were chosen, and what did he choose them for? His glory, which means what? It's very churchy language there. Yeah, they're going to represent the character of God to others. They're going to they're live out the message that he is. And so he says, I will deliver you from Egypt, that you will be my people, that you will go and worship me. So uh, God's people are distinct because God made them distinct by saying, you are mine, you belong to me. And that happened uh, way back with, who did he make a covenant with to kind of get that whole ball rolling? Abraham, Father Abraham, many sons, many sons of Father Abraham. We know Father Abraham, that's when it started. So because God's people are distinct, the call that God has placed on their lives is a call to be holy. So if you are God's people, you are distinct because you're God's people. It, it was, he, he chose you, uh, he drew you in, and because of that, he calls you to be holy. So this week, the focus is that God's people are sinners, so they should offer sacrifices. So if you're writing notes down, that would be something to write. God's people are sinners, so they should offer sacrifices. That's what he teaches us in Leviticus. Now. As I communicate things, there's a lot that as I talk about uh, sinners, sacrifices, atonement, blood, I'm not gonna stop every moment and tell you the part about Jesus. Now, there's a lot of Jesus in Leviticus, a lot. But I want y'all, I mean, y'all have a, a good foundation in the word. We, we spend a lot of time in it, so as I'm reading this and as we're going through things, I'm making points that will be communicated in the book of Leviticus, but we are Christians on this side of the cross. And so as Christians, I encourage y'all to do that work while we're studying and saying, oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that blood. Is, okay, so they would make sacrifices, and Christ is my sacrifice. How does that change things for me? How does that inform me in the way I'm going to live my life today? So do that work as we, as we go through this together. The background of Leviticus. Does anyone remember what Leviticus is, like that this 27 chapters of, of text, what, when was God talking to Israel? I gave away half the answer. Yeah, the base of Mount Sinai. It was after he gave the Ten Commandments and they were there for how long? About? A year, that's right, about a year. And so this is what he communicated. He gave the Ten Commandments and then after the Ten Commandments there's a lot of clarity given in the book of Leviticus about offerings, and sacrifices, and rituals, and expectations for the coming years, and a lot of, lot of details. So Leviticus is made up of that time. Our memory verse is Leviticus 19.2, so we're going to say that together. Does everyone remember it? Just repeat after me. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. All right, we're going to say it again. Do y'all do memory versus youth? It feels like second grade a little bit right now. It's okay. We're going to go with it. So I want to hear y'all as we say it again, because you're all looking at me like I'm a crazy person, okay? Two of y'all rolled your eyes when I said that. I'll cut you. I will cut you. All right. Um, Just kidding. All right. Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy. holy. For I, I, the Lord your God, am holy. So... The main points that we're going to consider tonight are God's people are sinful, so we should offer sacrifices. And what we're going to look at in that is one, sinful people need sacrifices, two, sinful people need atonement. We're going to look specifically at the Day of Atonement, and we're going to look at Christ at the very end. So, first, my question before we look at any of the text is what is sin and what does it do? What is sin, and what does it do? Sin is against God, okay? It's corrosive, and it separates us from God. I like that. We'll go with that. Sin is against God, it's corrosive in nature, and it separates us from God. So my question, room full of Christians, is how do we keep from sinning? Yeah, we confess and we repent repeatedly over and over again. Absolutely, praying ahead for guidance and wisdom that God um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How else do we keep from sinning? Go to the, go to the Word. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to look at a few verses that explain that real clearly in Psalm 119. Um, how else do we keep from sinning? Confess our sins one to another. Pray for each other. And what does James say happens when you confess your sins to one another? Prayer of the righteous person has powers that's working. And what does he promise when you confess? Healing. Absolutely. It's beautiful. Confess your sins one to another, and you shall be healed. So... um, Turn to Leviticus 5, Leviticus 5. I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. So uh, sin is a pretty big category, right? Like, I don't want anyone being like, well, maybe in your life it is, but in my life it's very narrow. Um, sin's a pretty big category. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at a more narrow category within a big category. Um, because it helps us to understand God's view of sin, God's view of holiness. One thing that has overwhelmed me in reading through Leviticus, God's expectation for his people is not low. God's expectation for his distinct children is not just sort of, y'all just do the minimum and get by. He he has a high call of holiness that he's placed on the lives of his children. And so we're going to look at a specific kind of sin to sort of focus in on What God expects of us when it comes to the times where we wrong Him, have wronged Him, and are going to wrong Him. So, Leviticus 5, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19. It says, If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering, for he has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. What kind of sin is this verse referring to? It's referring to a specific kind of sin. What is it? Unintentional. Huh. Unintentional sin. We're going to talk about that for a minute. Um, unintentional sin first what does it mean to bear iniquity that's something we see all throughout the scriptures i was looking at it today it's like yes i'll bear iniquity for that and i thought let's ask a room full of christians what does it mean to bear iniquity a right view of your sin i think you bear iniquity when you have a right view of your sin And you're required to bear iniquity, whether or not you have a right view of your sin. Bearing iniquity, admitting, taking ownership of your own sin to bear the iniquity. uh, One of the things that it says at the end of the verse is for for the one who bears iniquity, they pay for the guilt. So to bear iniquity is to say, I'm guilty. Let's say I lose my temper and I smash that window right there. If I'm going to bear the iniquity, I'm going to say, uh, one, I need to chill out on the anger and repent, confess that, and I'm going to fix that window. So you see a pang for the guilt if one bears iniquity. So I want to make sure that's clear. My next question is this. Has anyone ever realized unintentional sins? Has this ever happened to anybody? Oh, that's a sin? Has that happened to anybody? Yes, Everyone's like, yes, and that's all I want to say about that. I don't have much more to expound upon. I'll give you a yes. Uh, does anyone want to share anything about unintentional sins that you realized? This isn't like I want to make you feel guilty and this isn't an embarrass you time, but this is a, a, an area that is, it's an interesting area of sin, unintentional sins. And I've got one I'm going to share in case everyone chickens out. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. yeah yes 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 when your four-year-old uses profanity it's like (laughs) so that's a sin and we're not going to do that you don't know what that means you don't need to know what that means stop it yeah what else what are some other examples of uh, unintentional sins that are realized Yeah, yes, yes, Romans 14, anything done outside of (laughs) faith is sin, so you got the, if you know the right thing to do and you fail to do it, it's a sin, but then if you do something that you didn't think was wrong, or that you thought was wrong, even though it wasn't wrong, that's a sin for you too, because you didn't do it in faith, anything done outside of faith is sin. Yeah, that was a shocker, because I read that verse, I was like, how do I go to Walmart in faith? How do I tie my shoes in faith? How do I brush my teeth in faith? And, and it really, that's the purpose of that. It opens you up to say, am I walking in faith? Am I being intentional about God's glory and being holy because I'm distinct as he called me? So, any other thoughts on uh, realized unintentional sin? Yes, I think. I do believe this the is all of the things process of Yeah, yeah, do understand more about yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. God's revealing a whole lot of specifics about what he expects. Um, has anyone ever come to a knowledge of Christ with full understanding like that? Anyone? Like, <laughs> I'm, I, in fact, did. Yeah. No, um, uh, they call us deacons. No. Um, uh, there's, there's I, I read a quote that just kind of reminded us that anyone who comes to a knowledge of Christ does so with a very limited understanding from the beginning. And that's what they were dealing with here. That's a great point. There, there's so much here that God expects. And you may say, oh, I did that, and I didn't know it was a sin. That was, that was unintentional. I was not intentionally sinning against God. Now, there are times we intentionally have sinned against God. There are times where God's people intentionally sinned against God. But as a Christian, it's not much different. You start your walk, uh, your journey of faith, and you do things, and it's like, I didn't know that was a sin. And a lot of times, yes, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit convicts, and Romans 2 talks about that. We'll go to it in a little bit. But um, a lot of times, God will use other people to, to bring about that conviction and to show things to you. A lot of times, he'll do that. Um, a lot of times, that's how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit will bring about someone in my life that says, hey, dude, you got to open your eyes to something because there's a problem here. And for me, one way that happened was in Philippians, talking about, anxiety i 've shared this before, if you' heard it before, deal with it. Um, but I, I used to think anxiety was sort of a badge of honor, like I, I really genuinely thought that I thought if i 'm anxious about something, it means I really care about something, and if you see my anxiety, then you should know that I have it because it means I really care about the thing i 'm putting my hand to so if if it 's a uh, an upcoming sermon and i 'm just filled with anxiety over the sermon, then it 's sort of a badge of honor because you should know. That that means I care about you, and I care about the sermon, and I care about truth. And someone took me to Philippians and said, um, "Look at what it says. it says, 'It says don't be anxious about anything, but rather humble yourselves before the Lord.'" And I was like, "Yeah, so what? What do you mean? What do you mean?" And uh, and they said, uh, "They said so. So if you're anxious, what are you not doing?" It's like, well, according to that verse which I'll research later, um, uh, it says I'm not humbling myself before the Lord. So this anxiety that I thought for a long time was sort of this badge of honor means I really care about what I'm doing and I'm dedicated and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm gonna you know, put my best foot forward. Um, in fact, it was coming out as this sort of self-centered, um, prideful, not trusting God, not humbling yourself before God. And I just remember thinking, that was unintentional. The text makes it clear. Anxiety is a form of pride, and I did not know that. And I was like, eh, that's an unintentional sin, and um, I don't want to keep walking in that, and so you repent. And so um, unintentional sins are, are addressed here in a specific way. Now, my next question is this. What does it mean for something to be subjective? Subjective. My next question is going to be objective. So if you know what objective kind of... Pairing, isn't it? Subjective. Yeah. Yeah. A matter of opinion. Two people can look at the same data and come away with two interpretations. That's a. That was a really thorough definition of of subjective. So uh, look. <laughs> yes. Yes, does anybody else have a definition of subjective? (laughs) We'll spend all night on it if we have to. Everyone matters. Um, So subjective is this is my opinion. This is the way I feel about it. This is my view of it. You may not have the same view. However, that's what it means for something to be subjective. What does it mean for something to be objective? Someone has an iPhone. Undistorted by emotion or personal bias. Yes, it is what it is. It's objective. It is what it is. Um, we could see a car wreck. You're standing over there. I'm standing over here. The wreck happens over here. I say, Yeah, there was a wreck on the left. And you say, No, there was a wreck on the right. That's a subjective detail. But the objective detail is there was a wreck. Does that make sense? So, subjective, opinion, preference, personal thoughts may differ from yours. Objective is it is what it is. So, the question is, according to these verses that we just read about unintentional sin, is sin fundamentally subjective or objective? I'm sorry, what? Did you say both? Objective. Okay. This is getting a little more complicated than I anticipated. So, uh, you're saying objective, right? Objective. And, and, and I'm going to go ahead and call it a given that God's the one setting the standard in this conversation. So, uh, yes, sin is objective. It is not subjective. What are some of the implications of that? There's a real line between what's sin and what's not sin. There's something called absolute truth. There's something called absolute truth. Okay, I like where we're going on that. So I want to look at three implications of the fact that we're sinners, even if we sin unintentionally, because we're looking. We're, remember the big picture. We're talking about God's holiness and what He expects of His people and the people's holiness. And so, so three implications of the fact that we can sin unintentionally. Turn to Romans two. Romans chapter two. Romans two verse 12 says this: "For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law." will be judged by the law. So what happens if someone dies not having heard the gospel according to that verse? Say that again? They're condemned because of their sin. That's a big implication. If we just consider we're called, to be sin- we're called as sinners to be holy, we're not called to be sinners. Technically, we are. It's inevitable. But we're not called. We're called to be holy. Just, just erase the last (laughs) ten seconds and go with me. If someone dies not having heard the gospel, they can't say, "Well, I didn't hear the gospel." You can't hold me accountable to that because I didn't, I didn't hear it. The reason for that is sin is objective. Now, what we're looking at here is this: they will be judged according to Scripture because of their sins. The implication here is ignorance is no excuse. I mean, if, if we believed that—I'm um, not going to go into that. that. That gets real sticky real quick. The implication is that ignorance is no excuse. So what we're looking at here is God calls us to be holy, and because of the fact that there is something called unintentional sins, and there may be people who don't know the gospel, they're still sinning against a holy God because he has called it what it is. And so we we need to keep an eye out for that and know that's a reality. And that that reality, we're not, we haven't gotten to it yet, but that reality plays into what we're called to as believers. The second implication is... Uh, Realizing that we can sin in ignorance provides great motivation to get knowledge. Great motivation to get knowledge. Um, Nothing is more frustrating than the person who is very secure in their salvation that doesn't give a rip about what this says. That's a very frustrating dynamic. Um, And they'll speak in very subjective terms, just so you know. So, Um, when we realize that, um, ignorance is no excuse and we can sin unintentionally, if I know that that's a possibility, I'm gonna, I should be very motivated as one who's called to be holy, I should be very motivated to get knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. Um, oftentimes, uh, accountability is simply relaying knowledge, um, Someone is living in sin in some manner, and as a Christian, a lot of times we don't like accountability. Because it's uncomfortable. Like you see someone who's being uh, real angry with everybody, and you don't want to be the person who steps in. And, uh, anger like that is a sin. You meet someone who um, is uh, living with someone they're not married with, not married to. And they want to talk to you about faith. And you get to that point, it's like, hey, i gotta, I got to shoot straight with you. You're not supposed to do that. It can become very uncomfortable very quickly. But the reality is we need to gain knowledge that's biblical. We need to let this be our standard because sin is not subjective. It's not a sin for you but not a sin for you just because you feel a certain way. And so what we see here is that um, there's a real motivation to get knowledge. Um, a good example in the small group do you have names details okay yeah one mm-hmm. of dealing with. Exactly what kind of is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that you gain that knowledge and all of a sudden you can address the sin issue as opposed to just, you're annoying me and I want to choke you. You can address the sin issue and there's a, there's beauty in that because you've gained knowledge. I was thinking about anger um, because there's a lot of men who struggle with anger and it's like, you think you can fly off the handle and it's okay because you're a dude. And that's not what it means to be manly. And that's one of the first things that came to mind. I was thinking about grudges. Um, Christians can be good at holding grudges. And guess what? We're not supposed to be because the creator of all things created, who is good and holy, doesn't hold a grudge against us. And, and so we're not supposed to hold grudges. Um, I was thinking about giving. I remember being a young married guy who had no kids and sort of acted like giving was an optional thing. And when you have someone sit down and say, hey, you know that's not optional, right? Let's go to the text. Let's look at it. And lovingly walk me through it biblically. I'm like, oh, so that needs to be like a priority, not a if I have something left over when I'm done spending. And it was convicting because it's like, oh, well, that's, I gained knowledge in that and I can walk in that knowledge as an act of worship. So gaining this knowledge, we need to know how we've offended God. That's kind of what we're getting at when we're gaining knowledge biblically? How, how have you offended God, and how can you walk in a way that's pleasing to God? We need to know what he means in his breathed that word, when he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. The sacrifice we give now is, is of our entire being. Um, we don't have to bring livestock anymore. In Christ, we are um, made clean, made new, and we give of our entire being, being every part of our life, is the sacrifice we bring to God. And he says that that happens when you are transformed by the renewal of your mind. It says that in Romans 12. So you're not just transformed by random occurrences, weather factors, whatever. You're transformed by the renewal of your mind. Your mind needs to be regularly renewed according to knowledge as it is breathed out by God in his breathed out word. So, Um, Psalm 119 says this, um, and we're talking about sinners offer sacrifices, but it says in Psalm 119, 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? If you're a young man who's struggling with purity, you guard your way according to the word. You spend time in the word, and you pray that God would guide you and guard your heart so that you can be a man of integrity who, who represents the character of Christ. Now, John 8 says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is an absolutely, completely beautiful verse in Joy American Idol. Um, There's a uh, beautiful, (laughs) I told her I was gonna do that earlier. I already knew she was leaving her. Um, uh, This is a beautiful verse that's kind of slung around a little bit the truth will set you free. I want to get pretty specific tonight. What does the truth set you free from? Bondage of sin. Yeah, we're not just talking about this carefree sort of hippie thing. We're talking about it sets you free from the bondage of sin. Now, how would it set you free from the bondage of sin? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I just want to make sure it's clear that we're, we're not set free from just feeling guilty. We're not set free from like in some real general sense. We're set free in a very specific sense and that we go to this word and we see what, what the Lord requires of us, what he, what he commands of us, and we see what, what he refuses to allow. And we walk in that, and the only way to walk in that is to do so in Christ, who is our perfect righteousness. And so um, there's absolutely freedom in that. The third thing, which is sort of an implication from that first point, the implication of unintentional sin, is that we should feel the urgency of sharing the news of the gospel with other people. There should be an urgency there. And the reason that I want to hammer on that just a little bit is that um, one reason that people will deny the kind of God that we're talking about here One reason people will deny that kind of God, who is sovereign over even salvation, is that his people will often use his sovereignty as an excuse for laziness, refusing to share the best news they've ever heard in their lives. But that's not, if there's something called unintentional sin, and if we know from Romans 2 that you'll be judged, whether you're under the law or whether you've never heard the gospel, if we believe that, we should be people who are urgent to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. That should really affect us, because that's the best news we've ever heard. Refusing to share the greatest news we've ever heard with others is selfish, and, it's, and we should not use God's sovereignty and his bigness as an excuse for our laziness, saying, oh, he'll save who he wants to save, because the means by which he saves them, how will, they, how will they know if they don't hear, and how will they hear if people don't say it? And so you have to speak the gospel. You live it out, and there are times where you have to speak it specifically to others in their lives. God has provided a way for people who have sinned against him to be forgiven and reconciled. So remember that good news from last week? Remember the two circles? We need to remember that there's a way for unclean things to be made clean and a way for common things to be made holy through a process called sanctification. And so it's only in Christ that we're cleansed from our former sins and we're made holy. So we have this reality here in Leviticus that all of God's people are sinners. We can sin intentionally, we can sin unintentionally. But in both instances, we're responsible, and the consequences are grave. What's the most grave consequence we see in Leviticus for sinning, be it intentional or unintentional? Death. Yeah, doesn't get much more grave than that. Death. Just to, I want you to imagine what it would be like if, if there was a sin that would just, death immediately, to see that in someone's life, to, to walk in knowing that's a, a reality, that the wages of sin is death. Now, God will punish sin through death. This is a picture of what we could call capital punishment. Now, there's a really great point that Mark Dever makes in his um, survey, and he says this, and I, I want us to look at it for a minute because it just says so much about the whole point of your life. I mean, that. There's so much written about what, what's the point, um, why, should I, why am I alive, um, how can I really reach my full potential, what, what is my purpose on planet Earth, all those kinds of things. And when we look at capital punishment, we can actually gain a whole lot of insight into what God's plan is. And, and, and Dever says this, he says, through capital punishment, God was teaching the Israelites, listen closely, that the quality of their lives mattered more than the duration. That's what the Creator wants you to know. The quality of your life matters more than the duration of your life. It was more important for His people to be holy than to be old. We think joy is found in a long life when the reality here is that joy is found in a holy life. More important to be holy than old. So our prayer should not simply be God give me a long life, rather God give me a good life, a life that brings glory and honor to you. Um, it's interesting. We're in 2 Chronicles right now, and one of the opening passages in Solomon's prayer that he prays to God, he prays for wisdom to be able to lead God's people in a way that's pleasing. And God says, you didn't even pray for long life. You prayed for wisdom. You didn't even pray for long life. You prayed for wisdom. And there was, almost a, there was this moment in Scripture where God marveled at the prayer of the king because he didn't pray for long life. And I think there was a wisdom there that he got from God, knowing that holiness is more important than longevity of life. So we'll jump through hoops to make our lives longer. But bodily training is is of some value. Um, But what's of more value? What is it? Spiritual training. Holiness. Holiness. Now, um, God gives an an example of this that we could see in Leviticus. If y'all have time, I want to encourage you to read Leviticus 26 this week. God's concern with the nation of Israel is really summarized in this chapter. And chapter 26 is a list of blessings for obedience and an even longer list of threats for disobedience. And reading that will kind of get you in touch with okay, that's a good summary of this is what God is expecting of his people. This is why his people exist, so that they'll put his glory on display by being holy because they're distinct, because of their calling. Now, God's people are sinful so they should offer sacrifices. Turn to Leviticus 9:22. Leviticus 9:22. God's people are sinners, and so they should offer sacrifices. Now, what I want us to see as we read this is that God has made a way for sinners to enter into a covenant relationship with him, and in this covenant relationship that he outlines from the get-go, that, that makes sense of our covenant relationship that we have in Christ now, a, a significant part of that covenant relationship was that sacrifices were needed. And when God speaks of covenant, I want us to know that there's a side note um, from the ESV note that says when God speaks of covenant, he's not using old, cold language of negotiation. He's not using the formal language of law courts. He's using the heated language of committed love. So anytime you start talking about covenant, and it sounds sort of legalese or jargonish, I want you to think of the heated language of committed love, because that's what he's using when he speaks of covenant. So we're going to read these verses aloud. Verse uh, 22 through 24 in chapter 9 says this, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar and when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. This is a sweet moment of God showing up, revealing his glory to some extent to his people who've been faithful in the sacrifices that they brought because they are sinners who entered into a covenant with him sacrifices are needed because there is failure on our part to be holy. Do y'all hear that? Sacrifices are needed because there is failure on our part to be holy. That's what he's saying to his people in Leviticus. Sacrifices are needed because there's failure on your part to be holy. Look at Leviticus 17:11. interesting have you ever read that like who likes their steak rare or medium rare most of the dudes some of the ladies who know what a good steak is like their steak rare or medium rare when i read about not having any blood in the in the meat you eat it kind of hurts my heart a little bit but it's interesting because this shows us why he says in 1711 he says for the life of the flesh is in the blood The life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, this is not some modern-day reason that you should never have rare steak. We're understanding why God did this for 1,500 years in a sacrificial system. And he says this, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hopefully, you're thinking of Jesus right now. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person shall, among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. The reason he said don't eat meat with the blood in it is because he's making the very, very, very significant point that the blood is for your atonement. The blood is for your atonement. The blood is for your atonement. It's not for a tastier meal. The blood is for your atonement. The blood is for your atonement. Every time you cook it, is there blood? Okay, we don't, we're, not gonna, we're gonna keep cooking it because the blood is for your atonement over and over and over again. So, uh, that's an insightful verse. And I think it means that because of Christ, we can eat our rare steaks and faith and joy. Now, personally. Personally, that's what I think. Subjective. Um, sacrifices are needed because we fail to be holy. So, for thousands of years, through the process of incessant repetition... The sacrifice has taught the Israelite that sin brings death and that only shed blood brings atonement. And so there's this interesting dynamic where the sacrifice was a loss of goods, but also a destruction of life that it may bring true life to the repentant sinner. This is just a theme, a principle, a very significant purpose and foundation that God is building on for his people to understand. The blood is for the atonement. So um, what would the worshiper do when, when they brought the sacrifice to the tabernacle? What would they do? They bring their livestock, and what happens? Yeah, they take it to the priest, cut the throat, and what would they do when they cut the throat? Drain the blood? Would they say anything? Anything? Confession of sins, that's right. They would confess their sins, that's exactly right. Yeah, they would confess their sins and they would offer the sacrifice. And so my question is, when they're doing this, they bring the deal, they bring it there, the tabernacle's in the middle of the camp. Is this a public event or a private event? Well, that's interesting. It's a public event. So we have this big public event that happens when they're going to offer their sacrifice and confess their sins. What I want us to see here is that by doing this, through these motions, bringing laying on hands, confessing sin, killing the animal, offering it to the priest, trusting God's design that the priest is going to do what he's supposed to do. By doing that, they publicly identified themselves with the offering itself, and they, not the priests, would slaughter that animal. So they would publicly identify themselves with that offering, essentially saying, that's what I deserve. I'm a sinner. I can't achieve life on my own. I deserve what this animal got. And so there's a public identification with that sacrifice. So we could spend a month there, but we're not going to. Turn to Leviticus 4. Look at verse 13. It says this. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, And they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commands ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting publicly, and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. This is a picture of substitution. We read about it earlier. We just read about it in a different way for the whole congregation here. It's a picture of substitution, or what we might more specifically call substitutionary atonement. The blood is for atonement. Substitutionary atonement means you have to have a substitute. You can't die for yourself to cleanse yourself of your own sins. This is something that was instilled in God's people from the get-go. There has to be a substitute if you want atonement. We call this substitutionary atonement. So one reason that the sinner is to bring a a sacrifice is because they need a substitute. So here's a question I have. Some sacrifices were irregular irregular and situational, like, I just sinned, I'm going to take a sacrifice, Uh, I'm going to go and confess, I I sinned, I I struggled today, I'm going to go and confess. However, some were regularly scheduled events, daily, weekly, monthly, annually. So here's my question. If sacrifices were primarily for atoning sin, why and how could the nation schedule these events ahead of time and at regular intervals? It's a given. There's gonna be sin. Does that make anyone sad? That's, that's sobering, right? Turn to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 6, I'm sorry. How in the world could you schedule times of confession and sacrifice for the atonement and forgiveness a week out, a month out, a year out, Look at what it says in Leviticus 6, 12 through 13. The fire, this is the Lord speaking to Moses. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Why? Because we're sinners. Sacrifice will be needed. Atonement will be needed. Confession will be hugely necessary. Behind the whole sacrificial system was the assumption that the people would keep sinning. No immediate end would come to this bloody procession of sin and sacrifice, and that's why God tells the priests that the fire on the altar must never go out. Sinful people need atonement. We can define atonement as righting a wrong how can we right the wrong from our sin? I want you to turn to Leviticus 16, and this is what we're gonna close with. Yeah, like just a couple minutes left. Leviticus 16. Ben told me if I go past seven o'clock, it's not the Lord leading me to do so. <laughs> so it's the devil described as an angel of light disguised. That's what he said. This is the day of atonement. Um, I grew up in a very Jewish high school oddly enough, and, uh, and they, they call the Day of Atonement Yom Kippur, you've probably heard of that more than you've heard of the Day of Atonement, ironically, it's kind of funny, um, Yom Kippur, and it was on this day uh, that the high priest representing all the people would enter the presence of God in the most holy place to present a special offering one time a year uh, to be offered for the whole nation, and uh, I want us to look at this, look at 1620 through 22, When he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting the altar, this is the day of atonement, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. After the first goat was offered as a sacrifice, the high priest would lay his hands on the second goat and confess sins. And this, this goat was called the scapegoat. And it was released into the desert in order to symbolize the total removal of sin, the Day of Atonement, total removal of sin by the penalty of alienation and estrangement. The Day of Atonement was a beautiful occurrence. I encourage you to read it as a family. Look at what that would have been like the one day a year where they go in and they do this. Um... And after they did this, the same thing would happen the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year. This would happen again the next year and the next. God wanted his people to know that they live in a state of sin. And sadly, there was no perfect sacrifice. That's the season they were in. You're going to come back and do that again for the whole nation next year, and you're going to watch that scapegoat go out and leave, and you're going to know there's forgiveness, but we're going ha- to do this again next year as a nation. And until the time we do it again as a nation, we're going to do it as tribes and as individuals leading up to that that time. So we're going to close by reading really good news in Hebrews 10. Turn over to Hebrews 10. I'm going to read Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, and then I'm going to read 9, 22, 26, and 28. I'm just going to kind of read it all together as uh, as a Bulk of good news. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, what we need to see is that what we're studying in Leviticus was God's intentions for his people, but however, that was not, um, the law was, that was a shadow, and it wasn't, it wouldn't be until Christ, until the true form of those realities would come into fruition. So we're on this side of Christ and we can know, okay, we just spent a lot of time talking about atonement, blood. We're all sinners. We're gonna have to go and sacrifice again and again and again. You don't use the blood for anything but the atonement of the people. Um, you gotta cook the meat. You gotta go again and again and again. We got this, this day of atonement. It's gonna happen every year for the whole nation. The scapegoat, we're gonna see it go out. Those are a shadow, but the true form of the realities is seen in Christ. And so this is good news, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, Every year, think day of atonement, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? It's kind of a funny text. Like, if that worked, why'd they have to keep doing it? That's, that's what's being said here. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I look at 9:22, 26 and 28. Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared, Jesus Christ, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's good news, and I hope God finds us eagerly waiting for him. So from Leviticus, this book that I was absolutely dreading teaching, we look at this and we say, God's people are distinct, so we should lead holy lives. God's people are sinners, so they bring a sacrifice. But for us, that call, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Our holiness is not something we try to earn through obedience, it's something we have in Christ, and we express the gratitude and we express our faith through obedience, by doing what God calls us to do, presenting our lives as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to him because we've been transformed by the renewal of our minds. And we trust Christ to be the sacrifice, the once for all. And we trust that when he comes back, he'll find us eagerly awaiting for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for Christ. We thank you for atonement. We thank you for a substitution. We thank you for a sacrifice, all provided by you. And so... We sit here tonight as very, very blessed people, and I pray that we are indeed eagerly awaiting the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.